You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, welcome to Certified, Canada's Class Actions uh, Podcast. And today we're here with uh, Naomi Lois and PJ Bouchard, and we're, we're going to be talking about a third-party litigation funding. And Naomi and PJ are both with Omni Bridgeway. Um, Naomi is the investment manager and legal counsel and the head of the Toronto office for Omni Bridgeway. And uh, prior to that, she was uh, a litigator at Lensner Slat. And PJ is uh, investment manager and legal counsel at the Quebec office, and he's the head of Quebec operations from the Bridgeway, and prior to that was at McCarthy Tetro. So uh, welcome, Naomi, PJ. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having Hi, us. Thank you. Great. Uh, so uh, let me start, uh, like I do with uh, most of the guests on the podcast, with uh, asking you about your background in class actions and litigation generally. How did you uh, how did you get into the area, and then how did you come to work for Omni Bridgeway? And uh, Naomi, let's start with you. Well, as we'll be able to share with you, PJ and I have been friends for quite some time. We became friends when we were both clerking at the Supreme Court in 2005. And after that, we had slightly different litigation careers that have now brought us both back to Omni Bridgeway. I practiced with uh, Lensner Slat in Toronto for close to a decade. And then in the end of 2015, uh, Omni Bridgeway, which was then known as Bentham IMF, was looking to expand its operations in to Canada. We had a presence in quite a few jurisdictions and had been keeping an eye on Canada for a number of years and watching the jurisprudence and the evolution of the market decided that it was the right time to open an office in Canada. The company was looking for a litigator about my vintage to help open the Canadian operations, both in terms of assessing the litigation, which we'll talk about a bit later, um, and also bringing the idea to the market, someone who was known in the community and able to introduce it to the legal community um, and I was lucky enough to be hired as the person to do that so for me it was a really great way to combine my litigation skills with a new and exciting idea for the Canadian legal market mm-hmm. great and PJ how about you yes well as, as Naomi said uh, when uh, when we parted ways uh, after our clerkship um, I uh, so I moved to New York for uh, uh, for a couple of years and I practiced at uh, Cravats Win and More, and then I uh, after that I returned to Canada and went to McCarthy's, where I uh, I did a lot of class action defense work. Uh, so some some might say that I'm uh, I'm a turncoat uh, now, <laughs> as uh, as uh, and as so as soon as uh, I'm the Bridgeway. Uh, uh, they were called Bentham IMF uh, at the time. Opened in Canada, I was I was very interested by uh, by the business, and I know they were serious when uh, when they hired Naomi, of course. Um, and uh, so McCarthy had actually advised the the company in the context of uh, of uh, their due diligence for one mm-hmm. uh, for for a potential investment. Uh, and uh, you know, I I, I thought that uh, that it was very attractive, and when they offered me to uh, to lead the expansion in, into Quebec, so to speak, in uh, in uh, 2018, I uh, I just could not say no. Uh, and of of course, Naomi was uh, was very convincing. It must be all her years <laughs> as uh, as a trial lawyer uh, in front, including in, in front of juries, I, I believe. Um, and for for similar reasons as uh, as Naomi described, I, I as a litigator, I I found it very. Uh, uh, interesting to be able to use our experience in in a different way uh, while remaining very close to the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that would describe it. Great. So, uh, just for our listeners, before we move on, so uh, there might be some listening to this podcast who are thinking, "Well, hang on, we've already done litigation funding. We've already done an episode of that, uh, and we did have uh, Remessa Herji from the Class Proceedings Fund and um, Emily Maxwell from Augusta Ventures on." Uh, uh, a little while back. And so uh, th- this episode is really more about doing a deeper dive on litigation funding and looking at how the jurisprudence is evolving in this area and what the future trends might be. And just looking at more of the sort of um, uh, the, the sort of deeper, more nuanced issues. 
So we've, we've done our introduction to litigation funding and now we're doing a more deeper dive. So um, having said that, let's move on to um, the rules on litigation funding across Canada. So how do they differ across Canada and how do you coordinate between those rules when it comes to a national class action? Uh, PJ, perhaps you could start us off on that. Sure. Um, so un unlike the common law provinces, uh, Quebec has no clear rule that, uh, that the court must approve funding when it is obtained by the class. Uh, I believe you, uh, you explained, uh, you explained this in, in the first episode. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, so in, in fact, in, in the two main reported decisions about, uh, funding in, in Quebec, the, the existence of the arrangement was only disclosed at the end of the case when the court mm. was asked to approve uh, settlement and, and the class counsel's fees. Uh, in, in, in both cases, the court agreed with class counsel that funding had been necessary to advance the case fully and in the best interest of class members. And therefore, the court agreed that the funder's fees should come out of, uh, of the settlement uh, envelope obtained by the class. Uh, so it, it is different from most common law provinces. I, I think the practice of not seeking court approval of a funding arrangement at the outset may soon evolve uh, and, and will mirror that of, uh, of other provinces, uh, particularly to bring certainty for, for everyone involved. Uh, I believe if you, know, if, if you ask us uh, if we do a funding arrangement in Quebec, I, I believe we would prefer uh, to get it approved at the outset. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the funding of national class actions, I think, militates for a coordinated approach uh, before the courts of the various provinces. Uh, and maybe Naomi can uh, um, discuss a bit further on the coordination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of, the things that we're, one of the things we're seeing a fair bit these days is uh, detailed coordination across provinces. Some of the really big class actions, as you will know, are being advanced by consortiums so that they can share an expertise, particularly when they have local expertise or local connections that help them better represent the members of those provinces but can still be part of a, a coordinated approach across the country. In those circumstances, we tend to see that the funding gets approved in what will ultimately be the lead jurisdiction or the key jurisdiction that's going to um, handle the case. And there seems to be a fair bit more openness to that coordination from across the um, from across the bench and the bar so that mm -hmm. it can be um, better managed uh, more efficiently, which is certainly one of the missions of the system right now. Great. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that obviously in the recent changes to the Ontario Class Proceedings Act uh, and in the changes to some of the statutes in the Western provinces where they're trying to, um, you know, consider multi-jurisdictional class actions and find ways to coordinate them. Um, and you can see that in the changes to the legislation. So uh, then let's talking about, talk about the litigation funding market in general in Canada. How, how is that evolving? So we're used to sort of the standard funding model and we discussed this um, in the previous litigation funding episode. Uh, we're used to the sort of standard model of funding disbursements and you know, sometimes there's an indemnity for adverse costs. Um, what are the newer structures and uses of funding that we're beginning to see? Uh, t tell us uh, more about that. So Naomi, perhaps you could start us off there. This is what I think is one of the most exciting things about being part of this business is seeing the different models that can develop. Um, I, I think it, part of it comes with a personal bias, which is I was raised as a litigator um, at a litigation boutique where really we took on cases on behalf of plaintiffs or on behalf of defendants. And I don't think there has to be a distinction between the quote unquote plaintiff's bar and defense bar. We're all litigators and we can uh, litigate meritorious cases on behalf of our clients. And funding opens the door to that in the class action space by now being available for a variety of different structures. So some of the structures that we have seen now are uh, not just that early model, the funding of disbursements plus an indemnity, but also a funding for all or a portion of the legal fees that the mm. um, law firm is going to incur as the case goes forward. Sometimes that looks like a case where 
the law firm gets paid, for example, 50% of its fees as the case progresses, um, and then they take on uh, that second 50% in exchange for a partial contingency fee. Uh, we saw a case approved in Ontario, the Tim Hortons franchise case, where the law firm was paid 100% of its fees the entire time as the case progressed, wow. um, and then only in exchange for a very small court-approved um, bonus of 2 to 3% upon success. So from the law firm's perspective, that's business as usual from an hourly fees client. They do the work, they get paid on a monthly basis, and then the risk and also the reward of carrying that risk gets transferred entirely to the funder. And this opens the door for different law firms, different lawyers to, to take on cases because there's a lot more flexibility in the types of models that they can use for their fee structures. Mm. And uh, you, you mentioned in our sort of preliminary conversations, and maybe PJ can jump in here, uh, but you mentioned uh, sort of a, a startup funding model or a portfolio model. Um, could, could you tell us a little bit about, more about that? Sure. Yeah, I can I can say a few words about that. Um, so uh, portfolio funding means we're funding a, a law firm directly as opposed to the class in a particular case. Um, and so I would say ra rather than uh, than use a bank line of credit uh, to fund its operations, a firm can use funding secured by the firm's potential fee income in uh, contingency cases. Uh, and so since, uh, you know, the practical effect, of course, is that since the financing is non-recourse, uh, the firm retains the funded amounts, even if the portfolio cases uh, ultimately are unsuccessful. Uh, in if and when, uh, hopefully, the contingency fees are collected from one or more of the cases, uh, the firm then pays a return to the funder, uh, which is normally a, uh, a multiple of, uh, of the amounts uh, received. Um, and um, yeah, so that, that's, that's basically the, 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 the structure. Okay, so you're funding, you're funding a number of cases. Uh, I mean, are they specified cases or you just sort of give the money to the law firm and say, whatever you're working on right now, we're, we're going to fund that? How, how does that work? Right. So we, I mean, we've done two or, or three uh, in Canada so far, and it depends. Uh, mm -hmm. so, sometimes the firm will only want to put, uh, I would say normally we, you know, we, pre we prefer to have three or more cases uh, and we'll identify which uh, cases are part of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it can also be uh, uh, open and, and as collateral, include all of the contingency fee uh, cases that, uh, that a firm will, uh, will handle. Mm-hmm. And Naomi, how do you um, how how do you provide that kind of funding in a way that complies with the rules against champerty and maintenance? I mean, that can be tricky, right? How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, there there are two things we're really careful about when we structure those portfolio arrangements. Arrangements. So the first, of course, is uh, maintenance and champerty, which the courts over time um, they have evolved in their interpretation of that. Um, so the key considerations are that we can't stir up the litigation. So they have to be cases that are already on foot or contemplated by the time um, someone comes to ask for it, some comes to ask to ask for assistance with funding. Um, the second is that we can't control the litigation and we're very careful that it continues to be the representative plaintiff who gives instructions. Um, and then mm -hmm. the third factor we give thought to is to make sure that our returns are not unreasonable, which is why we're, we're happy to get court approval and to get guidance from the courts as to where our returns are reasonable and, uh, and not. And if, if we're in line with those guidelines, then we're comfortable that we're safely within uh, the mandates and maintenance and champerty. The other thing we have to keep an eye on in the portfolio funding structure are the fee splitting regulations mm -hmm. under the Law Society Act in some in some jurisdictions. Um, and there, because as PJ said, our return is not tied to the amount that's received in any particular case. It's not like we get a percentage of the outcome that a law that a law firm is going to share in, and then they share in that with us. But it's just tied to the amount of capital that we've advanced to the law firm and how long our money has been out, that that we're comfortable with um, being in line with the fee splitting regulations so that everyone is, of course, operating ethically and above board in, in a way that we would all want to as members of the bar. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you also mentioned uh, in our preliminary discussions uh, the, the funding of uh, startups and firms that are newer to the class action space. And... Uh, 
and that, that that's something that's that's fairly new to me and i don't know if it's just uh, omni bridgeway that does it or whether other funders do it as well but can can you tell us a little bit more about that i mean how does that work uh, naomi if you could start us off Sure. Uh, we tend to see the portfolio interest in two principal areas. The first is, as you said, new law firms that, that are starting up. Um, and they can come in the form of uh, lawyers who are leaving their existing firms to go out on their own. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're lawyers who've been working for quite some time with plaintiff side firms, sometimes with defense side firms. As I said, I hope that distinction goes away. Um, but law firms, lawyers who would really like to start out on their own, but they don't have the war chest that some of the firms that typically do class actions do to pay for associate salaries, all the um, disbursements, particularly expert reports, things like that, that you need to be able to advance those cases. So we're able to provide them with a form of startup financing secured against the cases that they're going to advance and, and enable them to get on their feet and start bringing, it, bringing those cases and um, prosecuting them in a meritorious but well-capitalized way as well. The second area where we tend to see interest in this type of portfolio funding is when you have some lawyers within a firm who would like to do class actions or who would like to do more contingency fee type work. But there's a bit of a discrepancy within the partnership as to how you're going to manage the cash flow, how you're going to manage the cost when you win, how are you going to share in the in the big profits that the, that the firm sees. And by having us come in and help manage that risk and help steady out that cash flow for the number of years that a class action can take, it makes that conversation within the partnership easier and it ensures mm -hmm. that everyone's comfortable with advancing those claims. Uh, and do you think you'll see more firms or, or more people striking out on their own and taking you up on that startup funding uh, as as you know, as the years progress? Is that something that is the class action space opening up, do you think, generally? We hope so. It's, mm -hmm. it's exciting for us to see great lawyers who want to take on great cases, um, and we'd like to support them in doing so. Some of the evidence coming out of the U.S., which is, of course, ahead of us in many regards with respect to legal markets, is that up to 70% of the capital that's going into the dispute finance or litigation funding space in the next five years is likely to be in that portfolio model mm -hmm. as opposed to in the single case space. Mm -hmm. Uh, and PJ, maybe you could uh, help us out with this question. How how do you make sure that you know the the newer firms or the the startups, the the new players that you're funding, uh, what guidance do you provide to them? Do you just sort of give them the money and say go nuts, or do you <laughs> you provide some kind of structure or some kind of guidance on how to set up a firm? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, that a big part of our due diligence uh, when we uh, when we evaluate law firm portfolio is is the the our, our confidence uh, on the ability of of the lawyers to uh, to bring those uh, those cases uh, uh, to successful resolution. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, as Naomi uh, said, I think one one very interesting development uh, that we will hopefully see more is. Uh, you know, very talented lawyers uh, doing more uh, plaintiffs' work. Uh, I, it's a, I mean, it's interesting because Na Naomi mentioned that, uh, of course, Leng uh, Lengsner, uh you know, does more uh, on both sides. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think it's fair to say that large firms like uh, like McCarthy's and and other uh, more national firms uh, are are very uh, very hesitant uh, to to take to take more risk. Uh, in this space, and I, I think I, I do think one of the impact, as, as Naomi mentioned, that is that um, either those large firms will be more comfortable, uh, as we sometimes say, dipping their toe into uh, the contingency uh, space, mm -hmm. uh, or or we will see uh, you know very talented lawyers uh, at at those big firms uh, going on their own uh, with the with the support of funders. Uh, to to be able to act on uh, on the plaintiff side, but uh, of course it's uh, it, it, it is a, a key uh, part of our due diligence to uh, to make sure we have uh, we have confidence on on those lawyers. And in terms of uh, you know setting up the the firm, of course we you know, we can provide guidance, but it's uh, <laughs> it's mostly uh, it's mostly done by, uh, by by the lawyers. But uh, and and uh, you know I think we will. Uh, get there, but the, the the monitoring, of course, is is slightly different. Also on uh, uh, on the law firm portfolio, uh, mm -hmm. as Naomi mentioned, we uh, you know we don't control uh, litigation even when it's a single case. Uh, 
when it's a portfolio, we do have, uh, uh, let's say, monthly calls with the lawyers to, to, to know how the cases progress. Uh, mm-hmm. But we are, we are, in a way, less involved uh, in, uh, in how the, the, the cases are, are prosecuted. Less involved when it's the, the sort of portfolio approach rather than funding uh, funding startups. Right. Is that what you're referring to? Okay. So, uh, so, so then take us to the due diligence piece for, uh, for funding cases, whether it's on a portfolio basis or on an individual case basis. How do you do um, that due diligence? What's the process um, before you take on a case? And then uh, what are your rates of acceptance? Yeah, so I, I will let Naomi discuss the rates because she has mm-hmm. uh, been there for, for the longest, but I can start with the process. Uh, you know, I think it usually starts with a conversation with counsel. Uh, the, the three ma- main criteria are str- you know, strength of the case on the merits, damages that are significant enough so that our return will not take too much out of the proceeds uh, to be mm-hmm. recovered by the class, and, and the ability to enforce on, uh, on a judgment. Uh, we we do most of the due diligence ourselves, uh, but we do uh, get opinions from outside counsel from time to time, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, as as we had done uh, when I, I when I was at McCarthy's at the time. Um, in terms of timing, I would say that we generally need thirty to sixty days to complete our our due diligence on a case. If after a, a first conversation, the case meets our our initial uh, our initial investment threshold. Uh, and the, the ultimate decision on any given investment rests with our investment committee uh, to mm-hmm. whom we present and make recommendations. And the, the committee is comprised of former judges and, uh, and experienced litigators. Uh, and I, I think Naomi will agree that it's a, it's a fairly hot bench, as we <laughs> used to say in, in litigation. That's absolutely right. It's the closest thing that we get to um to arguing in front of the court appeal now, of appeal now that we're in this role um, again. And uh, our rates of acceptance are relatively low. As you would imagine, mm. there are a lot of stars that have to align for a case to be a good case. There are a number of cases that are good cases, but they're not good cases for funding um, because the financial metrics don't justify the involvement of another commercial party. You're going to end up in a situation where the clients don't see enough of the return and and we're not comfortable investing in those cases. Um, Sometimes this is less true in the class action space, but sometimes you will have a situation where you look at a dispute and you think this is really most amenable to a business resolution, an ongoing Mm. licensing agreement, an ongoing business relationship, and you don't want to put the client in a position where they have to pursue a damages award because they've entered into an agreement with a funder where really there's a better business outcome. Um, So sometimes we have to say no to those cases, which is disappointing. Um, Since we opened, which is uh, five years ago last month in in Canada, we've looked at over 600 cases um, and we've invested in about 20 of them. And those numbers can be scary um, because, uh, but I think that's also, it's skewed a little bit by, first of all, some early numbers with respect to when the market was still new to us and reaching out to us for cases that weren't really in our wheelhouse, personal injury, for example, or other types of cases that we wouldn't um, invest in. Um, And also there are a lot of cases where, as PJ says, after we have that first phone call with a lawyer, we can say right away, no, this isn't something that's going to make sense, make sense for us. And so you can say a very quick no. The number of cases where we um, get more involved, we really start examining the cases, get to know the clients, get to know the, the legal theory. Those ones have as you can imagine, a higher success rate as we as we delve more deeply into the case. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just um, jumping off from that, you you mentioned that you know personal injury cases wouldn't be so much in your uh, your firm's wheelhouse. So, what what kind of cases would be? What is there a sort of typical profile of a case that you would take on? The the typical profile ties back to the three criteria that PJ mentioned a couple of minutes ago. We want a strong case on the merits with um, the financial metrics justify it. Generally speaking, mm-hmm. we'd like to see a one to 10 ratio between the realistic budget and the realistic claim size um, mm-hmm. so so that you can ensure that after the lawyers are paid, the funders paid, the lion's share of any recovery still goes to the client. Um, and then the third big criteria would be that we can recover from the defendant at the end of the day. There are a lot of cases that are very strong on those first two metrics, but you're not going to end up with a solvent respondent or someone who's going to make good on an award. That Mm -hmm. analysis for us has changed a little bit lately because um, about a year ago, we merged with a company called Omni Bridgeway, and now we've adopted their name. And they're experts in the enforcement of judgments, um, both against sovereigns and against, uh, let's say, able but unwilling debtors. 
So right. they can help us, uh, they help us on the enforcement side. So now we have that real cradle to grave expertise, um, which is valuable to clients, both at, at the time of enforcing a judgment, but also at the very initial um, stage when you're deciding whether or not it makes sense to advance litigation. Um, looking at it and making sure that you can make good on a judgment at the end of the day is a, is a big, important step for us. So after mm-hmm. those three uh, those three cases or those three criteria, then um, any strong commercial litigation um, is something that we would be uh, very interested in. I think the one the one exception would probably be, you know, back when we were litigators, we loved litigating new, novel, constitutional issues, and those are a little less attractive as a funder. We like to see a clear jurisprudential line of authority leading us to the conclusion, um, as you can imagine. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. If I if oh, I sorry, could yeah. add, uh, Susan, yeah. on on on, I think on class action, you know, in terms of what what type of of class actions uh, we fund, uh, coming from uh, you know a, a the defense bar, <laughs> as mm-hmm. uh, as Naomi mentioned, maybe we should not use this term. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to dispel the the impression on on the part of some defense counsel and and their clients that funders are are part of the problem they perceived with. The multiplication of class actions, uh, at, at least in you know in Quebec, it, it is uh, you know the complaint that we keep hearing from the defense bar and judges uh, relates to uh, class actions, particularly in the consumer space, where mm-hmm. class members will essentially get no compensation, or or very little in the forms of of coupons, etc., uh, with the class counsel still getting significant fees. And as you know, as Naomi mentioned, because of the investment metrics uh, that we've discussed, uh, funders will not generally get involved in in those types of cases. Uh, you know, f- we will only invest in cases where uh, where they are both strong uh, on uh, on merits and also that will bring a decent compensation to the class members. So, I, I think it's important to sort of dispel this uh, the, this impression that uh, that some have. Mm. Well, just to play devil's advocate, because we, we have had episodes where we talk about sort of compensation versus behavior modification. Um, I mean, isn't it all the same to the funder, whether, uh, I mean, personally, I obviously believe that class members should be compensated as much as possible. But isn't all the same to the funder, whether the class members are compensated or whether uh, a big chunk goes to fees or whether there's it's distributed CPRA? Isn't it all the same to you, or why? Why is compensation important to to your firm? Well, I I, I do think, and, and I'm you know I'm, I'm sure Naomi will have comments as well. But it, on any investment, I think uh, it, it is very important for us uh, that uh, that the claimant, and in the context of class, in that context of class actions, the they're the class members, uh, mm-hmm. you know, get get the lion's share of of the proceeds. I think. Uh, you know, it it might happen that uh, uh, that 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 it's difficult, but uh, at the end of a case, for instance. But certainly, when we evaluate a case, uh, it, it's something that we always uh, that we always consider, and and we uh, you know we we mostly feel uncomfortable uh, when when we see a potential avenue uh, where, let's say, the lawyers and the funder uh, would would get the lion's share of the proceeds. Mm-hmm. We, we have a real interest in this being a sustainable industry. Uh, we, we are a publicly traded company. We are, we've been at the forefront of the industry now for 30 years. And we would be really cautious about any step that could be taken in, an, in any single litigation that would start to undermine the integrity or the sustainability of the dispute finance industry. Um, and that informs all of our funding decisions. We, um, you know, for example, in the intellectual property space, we like to see a compelling inventor story. We want the inventor mm-hmm. to be part of the litigation with us. We, we look at the details of who the client is, who's going to see the return. And I don't know if every funder operates that way, but you know, we've been a leader in the industry for such a long period of time, and, and we want to stay in that role, and it informs our investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... Uh... Okay, so let's look about look at once you've decided to fund a case, how do the uh, reporting requirements work? So you've you've taken the case on, uh, you're proceeding with it, and then how how do the reporting requirements work? How often are they? What kind of uh, information has to be provided? That kind of thing. Uh, Naomi, perhaps you could tell us about that. 
Sure. I think most council who work with us would agree that it's not very burdensome. Um, one of the things that's nice about, we now have eight lawyers in our Canadian operations, and we all practiced here. So we're familiar with who the lawyers are, who the judges are, what the normal procedures are. So they don't have to explain to us what's happening step by step and, oh, we drew this judge or this happened mm-hmm. on the commercial list. You know, we we're, we know the industry so well that it's really peers talking to peers. Um, we like to get updates every month or two um, on the case, uh, on what's happening. If it's a really pivotal time in the case, if you're going up to a certification motion, sometimes we, you know, we'd like to know, you know, as things are happening, uh, not in real time, but but pretty close to it. We like to be consulted when there are really important milestones, but we're very careful to to be hands off. We work with excellent lawyers. We only invest in cases where we have confidence in the lawyers, and we believe that the clients are going to give, you know, co- very commercially reasonable and strategic advice. So mm-hmm. we're here as strategic sounding boards. If they would like to speak to us most do because they like the perspective that we bring it's helpful having someone like pj who used to practice on the defense side as a sounding board for preparing for motions um we used to charge a lot of money by the hour for doing that and now we do it because we're part of a team and we really want the case to uh case to succeed so mm-hmm. i uh, they're, they're pretty minimal and from our, our experience is that it's actually a real value add to to the client and to the case mm-hmm. uh pj do you have anything to add to that no, I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I think Naomi said it all. I mean, uh, to me, you know, a very interesting aspect of of what we do now is uh, is that we we work with with counsel and and our interests are are aligned uh, with you know with with counsel and with the representative plaintiffs and in, in the class action. You know, we it, it 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 is a bit akin to a, a joint venture, and we're all mm-hmm. we're all gearing towards the same the same goal. So, as as a former litig- litigator, <laughs> it's good to. To, to always be of that mindset as opposed to um, uh, actually being in court uh, arguing. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. So, uh, so I'll stick with you, PJ, for this one. So, uh, you know, the, the Ontario legislation now has um, uh, basically statutory requirements for, uh, for courts uh, having to approve litigation funding agreements, and that's part of the common law across uh, most of the rest of Canada, except, as you said, Quebec. Um, I mean, how how should courts intervene in litigation funding agreements and and at what stage? Uh, and you sort of indicated previously that it, it should be in the beginning and that you prefer it to be at the beginning. But then, you know, what about things like agreed upon return, termination rights, things like that? How should courts intervene in those issues? Yes, thanks. I mean, that, that that's a very good question. I, I mean, I, I, and I think I will, uh, I, I will want Naomi to complete my answer because she, uh, she wasn't in, involved in I think the first case where uh, where where those issues were uh, were were very uh, uh, heavily discussed in Ontario the the whole uh, case. Oh yes, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know I think uh, clear clearly there are some rules. I mean the the funder uh, can't control uh, the case, uh, as Naomi said. The class uh, gives uh, the instructions, and of course class counsel uh, at the same time. At least in you know in in Quebec. This debate, for, you know, having entrepreneurial lawyers uh, make decisions on behalf of the class uh, is encouraged, and the courts uh, recognize that. Um, the the question of uh, of termination uh, uh, has been uh, has been part of uh, of the debate uh, for for a few years now. At at this point in time, uh, most courts. Will uh, require that uh, that if ever a funder uh, wants to terminate a a case, uh, they they have to bring a motion to the court, um, mm-hmm. and and I think we uh, it, it is reassuring for 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 the defense bar, uh, and we're uh, we're okay with that. Uh, and in terms of the the return, you know, I think I think here I, I I will probably pass the torch to to Naomi. But I mean, one one thing that is very difficult is uh, is for the court to uh, uh, to avoid hindsight and uh, and uh, look at uh, at, at uh, an agreed upon return at the time the investment is made uh, when uh, the funder and and class counsel don't know the outcome of a case. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think that tension between uh, the court uh, revisiting the issue uh, when the case has resolved and uh, and there has been a settlement or a judgment uh, versus when the case is initiated uh, and the funder and and class counsel agree on a return is you know is key in in this uh, in this debate. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think that's exactly right in terms of making sure that courts adopt. And it, obviously here we're talking about class actions because there's a different regime outside of the class action context. But mm-hmm. the you know, keeping in mind the commercial reasonableness with respect to both the termination and the, um, the, the return assessment uh, is really important because, of course, funders are commercial actors and they're going to make the best decisions they can based on the information that's available at the time. And when you're making these uh, decisions, it's before, usually it's before there have been um, pleadings, certainly before there have been, there's been discovery. Um, mm. A lot of the, wor- the world can change. That's the point of the discovery system, that you get to understand your case better and you get to learn facts you hadn't anticipated. And funders are making the best decision they can really in the absence of most of the information. And so to assess the reasonableness of a return at the end, when everyone looks and says, oh yeah, super obvious this case was going to be a grand slam. It's never obvious that it's going to be a grand slam. You're making that decision years ago, years before um, without the access to the vast majority of relevant information and you're make, making the best assessment you can. That to then try and assess the reasonableness at the end when everyone else was making a commercial decision at the beginning mm. um, is something we have to be, you know, we have to be careful to, to check against. And I, And I think that, ties into the question of termination as well, that there are, generally speaking in class actions, very limited termination rights. Um, But it's really in the best interests of access to justice and the court system that a funder not be obliged to continue funding a case that is in fact no longer meritorious. That's not good for the justice system. That's certainly not good for the defendants um, to be required to keep advancing a case when some sort of evidence has come out suggesting that in fact it's not a meritorious case or it's not commercially viable. That's not in anyone's best interests. And a funder who's already put a lot of money into the case who would have no opportunity to recoup that investment if the case is lost will uh, or abandoned would be the last party who would want to walk out on a case unless there's a very compelling reason to do so. Um, so I, I think as, as long as people look at these terms with the overarching view that someone's doing their very best to make a commercially reasonable decision, I think should give most people comfort. Mm. Um, and, and I guess you have to be careful about that, right? Because you don't want to uh, condition the termination rights on council doing what you tell them or you know following your instructions or etc etc you have to let them do their own thing and it's only when the case has for uh, perhaps other reasons become uh, commercially unviable you know there's some decision from the court of appeal that that makes the cause of action uh, not worth proceeding with anymore that then you would have uh, some kind of reason to terminate is that is that an accurate assessment or or a change of the evidence. Sometimes you, know, right. you, you commence a case and it turns out that a piece of paper or many pieces of paper come out and say, actually, this case is not what you all thought it was when you started mm-hmm. it out. That, that mm-hmm. happened, you know, the reason 97% of cases settle is because evidence comes out through the, over the course of litigation that changes the assessment the parties were making at the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you want to encourage that. And of course, the point that you raised earlier, we never could, nor we never would, nor could we make any sort of decision contingent on the lawyers doing what the funder instructed them to do. That's not mm-hmm. something that's permitted under the guidelines. It's not something that we would ever do. It is the lawyers who are retained to advance the case and to follow the instructions of the class rep, uh, of the class representative. So there's mm-hmm. no control uh, provisions that we have. And that's in some ways another reason why the risk assessment has to be made at the outset, not later in the day. We make that assessment knowing and that investment, knowing that we have to be hands off for the next five mm-hmm. years and just continue mm-hmm. to write checks. Um, <laughs> and so, and that's, that's a, you know, a delicate position to be in. Uh, there's not a lot of investors who invest millions of dollars on something where they have no say in what's going to happen mm. afterwards. And in addition to the fact that if the case is unsuccessful, not only will they lose those millions of dollars, but then they'll be required to pay another bunch of millions of dollars to the other side for having mm-hmm. lost for having lost that. So all of those factors of, of what a, the risk really is in this context have to be part of the mix. Mm-hmm. And so uh, on the subject of risk, and PJ, uh, maybe you can answer this question. So... Uh, do you think the fact that the fund uh, that a funder is involved in the litigation should that change the court's assessment of council fees? So when it comes to approval of fees, should the fact that council is exposed to less risk because a, a funder is involved, should that factor into the court's assessment of fees? Yeah, that's 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 a very good question, and uh, I I don't 
uh, I don't believe any court has looked into it yet. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think the answer is is maybe, but, uh, mm-hmm. but the court needs to assess the, the specifics of, of the arrangement uh, and, and what exact risks are covered. Uh, because the the outcome uh, and the the analysis would would uh, uh, would be different, uh, if mm-hmm. uh, as we may, as Naomi mentioned in the uh, the Tim Hortons uh, franchisees example, the TDL decision in Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, where class counsel uh, had been paid along the way for part of their highly work, uh, then well the arrangement already contemplated that a very small premium uh, could be paid, and ultimately. Uh, the court agreed uh, to uh, to give that small premium, uh, so that you know that's a good example pro- of the type of of analysis that uh, that will probably be done by by courts in the future, where uh, class counsel uh, have funding arrangements. But I think we also uh, need to be careful, and and courts should exercise caution. Uh, caution. Uh, because uh, you know, as as we've been discussing, uh, some you know some cases will settle quickly uh, mm. and some will take 10 years uh, and will go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so, uh, you know, and it's very difficult for class counsel to, to know which one of, uh, uh, of this route will, uh, will take place uh, when they choose uh, a case and when they uh, get funding. Uh, so it, we, we need to be cognizant of that. Uh, and part of the, yeah, part of the risk as as a I think as a firm, uh, part of the risk taken is uh, uh, you know is is the unknown when making the the commitment and the mix of uh, of cases, uh, and I think that yeah that applies as Naomi said both from the perspective of class counsel and uh, from the perspective of uh, of the funder. Mm-hmm. Naomi, do you have anything to to add to that? I agree with PJ. I think it has to be a nuanced assessment of mm. what kind of what risk was truly being carried. Is you know was the firm carrying its fees? Was it carrying all of its fees? Was it also giving a costs indemnity? Did they put their cottages up as collateral in case things go badly? I think that um, there's sometimes a temptation to say class counsel had a funder, therefore X Y Z. Um, and I think the courts are getting better and better at looking at what did that truly mean mm-hmm. to the to counsel and what kind of risk were they were they carrying? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you mentioned earlier, Naomi, about uh, the the rules against uh, maintenance and charity and the, the the fee splitting regulations and things like that. Uh, what other ethical issues arise with regard to third party litigation funding, and how how do you address those? I think we've talked about a lot of them so far, so I'm mm-hmm. grateful that the questions have had have had them come out um, to date. One of the things that's interesting to think about in with respect to how funding can change the dynamics is how um, the fact that one party who is carrying significant financial risk may also be the same party giving strategic advice to the class representative. And it's acute in the class action context because more often than not, you have unsophisticated litigants who are, who are guided very closely by the advice from their, from their counsel. Um, mm-hmm. And if that counsel is also the one who has a, a lot of risk on the table and a lot of exposure and other cases in their, in their um practice aren't going well or taking longer than usual, that can create some tension that the involvement Mm -hmm. of a third party can help manage that the third party who just provides the money but has no say in the strategic direction and gives no advice to um, to the client can, can help make that a little bit less uh, acute. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that, so that's an important benefit to uh, litigation funding um, that, that also ties into the ethical issues. Of course, you always want to make sure that your class representative is getting uh, independent legal advice at the early stages and during the negotiations for the litigation funding agreement so they understand mm-hmm. what options are out there. As more and more um, law firms are, are exposed to and comfortable with the types of funding arrangements that are out there, then that can be a really helpful um, helpful piece to, to have as well. And something, of course, that most courts uh, will now require. And if not, it's certainly a best practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, and then- PJ, I think, did you have anything else to add on that one? Sorry, yeah. Oh no, I think uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, one one concrete example is uh, it, it, there is a, a reported decision in Quebec about funding called the the Marcotte decision, and it's a mm-hmm. it's about the the case that went all all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, against uh, against a number of banks. 
uh, and it it is a good example of of what we were describing because the law the lawyers when uh, when the time came to get their their fee approved uh, also wanted to uh, um, to to get to have the class uh, pay for the funder fees and they they filed very detailed affidavits describing um, the financial pressures that uh, that they were under because the case took so long. And they, you know, they described they they essentially uh, put all of their assets, including all of their personal assets, oh, as wow. collateral uh, in the case. And I, you know, I believe this was very uh, powerful uh, um, to 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 be presented before the court. Uh, and it 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 showed that the, the type of pressure uh, that uh, that can uh, derive from uh, uh, from from you know maxing all uh, mm. maxing out of your line of credits, etc. And it, it was one of the justification uh, for the court to recognize that, uh, you know, funding was necessary uh, to uh, for for the lawyers to be able to to to, to go all the way on on the merits, uh, because mm. otherwise, may, may, otherwise maybe you know there there would have been uh, just the, the cash flow issues would have been uh, real pressure to maybe accept uh, you know a settlement that would not be in the best interest of the class, for instance. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when Naomi was talking about people putting up their cottages as collateral, she wasn't just that wasn't just hyperbole. <laughs> That's right. That actually is a thing. Um, so and then, and then you mentioned earlier, you were, well, you were sort of discussing earlier about the, the sort of commercial viability of cases. And that's really something that um, your your firm focuses on. Uh, would you ever consider funding a um, an action that may not be commercially viable, but you know is in the public interest or advances a particularly novel case, or is that just not something that you would do? We it, it's a very good question, um, and you know it, in many ways what we do is access to justice for a profit, um, mm-hmm. and historically that's that's how we've operated. We as a company are involved in a number of ECG initiatives where we um, you know, we think what we do as a whole is part of that broader trend, um, but also um, our involvement in some uh, legal projects, uh, research institutes in the U.S., for example, pro bono initiatives um, mm-hmm. and various uh, law school programs that we support here in Canada, um, and a number of other initiatives a- across the globe. We don't have a specific mandate at this time to invest in, in public interest actions, Although there certainly are investments that we've made in public interest actions because they also happen to be commercially viable, um, right. where we think we've added a lot of benefit to the to the system in general. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So it's it's not so much the litigation piece; it's more sort of uh, funding different different elements that would support access to justice, just not in the litigation context. And many of the projects that we fund, we think, also do have a have a you know public interest angle. They also mm-hmm. you know. It results in a return for our investors, um, but I think our involvement in the system in general, opening, you know, leveling the, the playing fields, um, we think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And uh, and sort of looking forward, looking forward into the future. So we're we're here to talk about sort of uh, forecasting into the future for, for litigation funding. How uh, how young is the market in Canada, and how much room is there to grow in this space? And 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 what. Uh, so that's the first part of the question. And then the second part is what trends do you see uh, developing in the, in the next few years? Um, TJ, let's start with you on that. Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I mean, I, I can I can mention one that, that comes to mind because it's a space that uh, uh, where we are funding a, a case uh, right now in, in, uh, in relating to the class action is the, uh, uh, the opt-outs. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think I think with uh, with the presence of uh, of funders on the in the market, uh, we will see uh, large claimants, uh, especially in this, for instance, in the securities class action space. Mm. Uh, large investors uh, will uh, explore uh, whether it makes sense to remain in in the class uh, or right. to. To opt out uh, and with this the assistance of a funder uh, file uh, file their own claims uh, mm. in in normal uh, in normal court. Uh, so I, I I think we see this uh, a lot in the U.S. In most class actions, there are a number of opt outs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have I think a few examples in Canada in the past couple of years. 
but I think that's probably a trend that uh, that we will see more uh, in in this space. So more of a, I mean, in the US, it's the MDL approach where you have sort of lots Correct. of claims or case managed together in one court. So you think we might see that more in Canada? Uh, Correct. Yeah, uh, Naomi, what's what's your take on that? It's so exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of development in the next five years because it's been, you know, the first five years has been really making sure the market and the community is comfortable with the idea. And now that people are starting to see its potential, we hear a lot of creative ideas. Um, I, I think there's a good chance that five years from now, large, sophisticated funders will be seen as the investment bankers to law firms. We understand mm. the legal litigation as an asset in a way that no other um, entity does, and we can provide uh, financing to law firms, big and small, for that. Some of it will be you know, to very large law firms who are just very cautious about their cash flow, and they want to have the, the comfort of knowing that, that we can back them. Some of them will be, as we talked about, those small startups who can have the benefit of our capital, and also sometimes with our back office support. For example, we have historically funded a lot of securities class actions in Australia. We haven't done uh, many of them in Canada, but we have um, a really sophisticated team who can help analyze client data, you know, upload all of their trading information, run different damages analysis, different um, class uh, frame analysis, and provide that support to a law firm that might not be able to do that on its own. So the idea of being able to be an investment banker that brings not only capital but expertise, I think, is something that we're that we're likely to see. Um, and then outside of the class action space, I think soon we're going to see we already are starting to see a fair bit of interest from well capital corporations um, so moving out of the David and Goliath context but into mm-hmm. um, clients who have lots of money they're just very careful careful about how they use it um, and they'd rather have the investment come from a, an entity that's sophisticated and specialized in investing at litigation so they can use their capital for their core business and we use ours for our core business um, and together we each protect the the risk and ensure a good return mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, so, I mean, it does it does really sound like uh, the the sky's the limit, as it were, in terms of litigation funding in Canada. It's a fairly young market, and uh, there's there's a lot of things that can happen in the next few years. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Yeah. I hope you'll have us back two years from now, and we can talk about <laughs> yeah. all the new things that we've seen. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Great. Is there anything else? Uh, I think we're drawing to a close in terms of our questions. Is there anything else you wanted to add, either of you? No, I think that's great. Thanks very much for uh, for having us, Susan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been delighted. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a really interesting discussion. So thank you for coming on. Uh, so we'll sign off for now. And uh, thank you again for coming on. And you both have a great day. Thanks. You thank too. you. Okay, take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. Hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins. And the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.